The end of 2020 approaches, but the same can't yet be said for the COVID-19 pandemic. As we approach the new year, now is the time for reflection and analysis. A time to examine our decisions and apply the lessons we've learned. We spoke with Tim Daly, CEO of Ed Navigator, on what decisions have been made to protect education during COVID-19, how well they've worked, and what lessons we can take from them as we move forward. It's a very challenging time, and I think on, on so many levels, it's not just the biggest you know, health crisis of this era, it's certainly the biggest education crisis too. And while it's difficult to grasp the extent of this crisis until it's over, the pandemic has exposed some important gaps in the U.S. education system. One of them is that we've realized how much we rely on schools because in the absence of schools operating as they normally would, it has become clear that uh, so many students are not getting the support that they need. And the, the projections from researchers indicate that a generation of students is likely to fall far behind. Higher income kids whose parents have been able to provide additional supports and tutors during this time, they won't be as bad off. It's also really clear that uh, lower income students, students of color, students who have you know, trouble getting connected technologically, and students who may be in unstable households, everybody you know, is, is extraordinarily worried about them. And so I, I do think that, that since the summer, we've, we've probably sharpened our focus a little bit in those areas. But even within each of those demographic groups, every family is its own story. But the degree of loss isn't just varied among demographics of students. Across the entire curriculum, certain subjects may actually take a harder hit than others. Everything that we're hearing and seeing suggests that numeracy, math skills, will be worse than literacy. Kids actually do a fair bit of reading outside of school and their parents can read with them, but they really don't do math outside of school. Your, your numeracy development is really dependent on access to school and access to instruction. So this is not the kind of learning loss that is going to be made up through the normal resumption of school. This is going to take extraordinary effort. So what effort has been taken already? What has our country done to mitigate these losses, both us as individuals and our government as a whole? One of the things that, we, that we've learned that's not positive it is we, we, we um, give lip service to saying kids are the most important thing and education is the most important thing. It is crystal clear that that has not been true, that, that, that we, have, we have not lived that value. And when I say it, it's crystal clear, what I mean is so many other things have been given precedent that are more dangerous to do and that contribute to more spread of the virus than opening schools. Those things have, have continued to happen. And in many parts of the country, um, schools have not been opened. And that's a tough lesson. You know, we have peers around the world that have made different choices. In Europe, when they had their surge this fall, uh, virtually every country said, when we move into higher restrictions, that doesn't include schools. And they, they did what we did the first time around, but there was a key variable. Everybody thought that schools were going to be a source of spread. And so you had to shut them down. You had to protect the kids. You had to protect the teachers. But, you know, we've all learned that if you take the right steps, spread in schools is very small. Everybody wears masks. People follow the rules. Even the little kids. We didn't think the little kids would wear masks, and they do. So communities are passing it around, but it's not happening through schools. And that's because when people give it to one another, it is almost always in settings where they don't have masks on and are in close proximity indoors. But that doesn't describe schools. There are virtually no parts of the country, certainly not any densely populated parts, 
where schools are open without mask wearing and without um, hand washing protocols in place and distancing in place. And honestly, schools are pretty good at enforcing rules. Schools are not bars. Some districts have compromised by returning in a hybrid model, where students go in person to school some days, but split that with at-home days to mitigate exposure. Could this be an easy compromise? There's a lot of folks who think that the hybrid model spreads it more because kids have to go, like for childcare, they have to be in more places, and that when they're not in school in person, they socialize with their friends more. And so there's actually some people who think that if you want to slow community spread, one of the things that you must do to slow it is open schools. The coronavirus will continue to impact the state of education well into the new year. Fortunately, there's a silver lining as new technologies have been given dedicated focus in classrooms this year. Finding permanent uses for some of these technological adaptations may benefit education in the long term. One thing that we have learned is that technology can be more of a tool for us than we probably have been using it. We now have an entire generation of kids and their parents who know how to use video chat technology and to engage with instruction online. And it opens up avenues for things like tutoring. So, for example, there's a lot of college kids that probably would like to tutor, but it's really hard to get them over to the elementary schools. With the technology that we have now, it might be really feasible for college kids to do that every single day. So one of the things I think we have learned is we can individualize and personalize instruction going forward in positive ways and not do it just through algorithms and, and robots and online, you know, kind of learning platforms, but real person-to-person contact. Blending existing technology with creative innovation could provide new educational experiences for children across the globe. I hope that we embrace the ability to use some of these virtual things to do things that we wouldn't have done before. So imagine that you're in a rural part of the country and you can't visit something amazing like the San Diego Zoo or the Statue of Liberty. But you could go on a live guided tour where somebody's got a, one of those GoPro cameras and is walking around showing you stuff, you know, and it's in real time. It's not recorded. It's not YouTube. You can ask questions and some of that stuff could be really interesting. But despite the innovations and creative solutions to the issues the pandemic has presented, one obvious fundamental rule remains true. Kids learn best when they're in school. So how broadly does this time away from school, even with distance learning, affect their education? In a typical year, you have 10 months of school and about two months in the summer or so when kids are not at school. We already know from past research that over the summer, there's some erosion in learning. And so what students tend to lose over the summer, they regain once again when they get back into the classroom in the fall. I think we, we thought that the period of time that students lost in the spring in terms of instruction would be the main loss. And that turned out to be so much worse in many parts of the country than we ever dreamed it would be. We still don't know exactly the degree of lost learning from that. We're starting to get some sense of it. But I think it has been, you know, a profound disruption in learning for, for students. I think we have more clarity now about the students that are in the greatest peril. And I think that the, the younger students are the biggest worry because they need the very hands-on contact with their teachers for both literacy and numeracy and social-emotional development. I think that the middle school students are doing a little bit better than we thought they would. Many of them are a bit older, can regulate themselves a little bit more, a bit more comfortable with technology. And I think in some parts of the country, high school students have adapted so if schools aren't contributing to the spread of the virus, 
and proactive safety measures have proven effective. Why are so many districts still closed? What needs to be done to get these schools open again? And when will it happen? I feel confident saying that this will be a local political decision, not a public health decision. That's been the case all along. Each community is going to make this decision based on political factors. The three things that predict whether a school opened this year, the first one is the percentage of the vote that Trump got in 2016. So it was very politicized from the beginning. He came out in the summer and said schools should open and a lot of more blue parts of the country that may have reopened otherwise, they kind of started to resist it because he was pushing it. The second thing that predicts it is whether or not the local school district has collective bargaining. So in the case where the school district doesn't have collective bargaining, then it's basically a school board decision. Where you have collective bargaining, you have to negotiate that with the union. And the reason that that New York schools are closing is because they negotiated with the union that if the positivity rate in the community went above 3%, they would close the schools. So they're being held, they're being held to that, but they agreed to that. And so they're stuck with it. And they had to agree to that to get the schools open. And then the third factor that predicts it is the size of the school district. So the school districts that did not open are large school districts that have collective bargaining in communities that didn't vote for Trump. A fourth factor that also matters a little bit is the concentration of parochial schools in the community. The more parochial schools you have, the more likely it is that the public schools open because of the competition. But you notice what I said was none of these things, you know what doesn't predict reopening whatsoever? The virus infection rate, zero, zero impact. And this was across hundreds, maybe thousands of districts they studied this. So um, it will be a local political decision. My, my guess is that things you know, will start hopefully to cool down in mid-January. And I think going forward from there, the temperatures will eventually be going up, the vaccine will be closer on the horizon. All the factors by that point will probably be pointing more towards reopening. One huge change on the horizon is the shifting administration. The federal attitude towards education will change regardless, but how can we expect tomorrow's policies to reflect those lessons we're learning today? My biggest hope is that they don't try to pretend this didn't happen and get back to business as usual and just move on without acknowledging how much work we have to do to repair. Like we, we have to rebuild. We can't just we can't just move on. That's one. Number two is I really hope that they they remember to invest in families and not just invest in school systems. Our schools and our systems need our support and resources right now. But. The schools and the systems have not been bearing the brunt the last nine months. Families have. Parents have. They're the ones that need support and relief. They're the ones who are emotionally drained. And so I think direct support for families for things like get your kids back in sports activities, music activities, gymnastics, all the things they haven't been able to do and may not be able to afford in the near future, Um, music lessons, all those things. Those are things that the government could offer tax credits for and and also invest in helping them find tutoring for kids who have fallen behind. So I really hope that they do that. My expectation, I think that the new administration will have a much more organized and coherent approach. So if if you and I talk in three or four months, you can hold me to that. But I think that they're determined to give better, clearer guidance and to have clearer benchmarks. I hope that they appoint a secretary of education who is very committed to getting schools reopened safely, and that, that is somebody who, who is, is determined to make that happen and isn't content to just sort of say, each state, do whatever you want, which is really where we've been. But there are some steps we can take on our own, and things employers can do to support the families of their employees during these challenging times. Uh, we, we have seen employers continue to be really flexible. 
we have seen employers who have taken matters into their own hands. So we, we work with an employer in uh, Louisiana, a manufacturer. You know, we have frontline manufacturing employees, people that do assembly. We know that their kids are in real danger. And we're not going to wait. We're not content to wait for the schools. We're going to start a, a literacy tutoring program right now. And they have employees tutoring other employees' kids. They, they started it within a couple of weeks, and it's up and running. It's amazing. And they basically are trying to rely on themselves and their own community and their own resources to make sure that kids don't fall behind. Um, so I do think that one thing that employers can think about is how can they support the whole worker? And a worker who's, whose child is in the middle of an educational catastrophe can't be the best employee. So I think uh, if there was one thing that employers could do, it is you know, get support to parents and get um, learning support to kids. How can employers connect kids with tutoring? How can they make space for that? How can they allow employees to volunteer? as tutors, especially in the context where it can be done virtually, to use their their human capital that way. COVID-19 will clearly have lasting impacts on our education system. The effect the pandemic has on children's current and future education may well affect their entire lives moving forward. Fortunately, innovation and technology are rushing to meet these new challenges. But it will take a concentrated effort from us as individuals and as a nation to offset the legacy of COVID-19. For more on this and other topics, subscribe to this podcast and visit wealth.us.cibc.com. CIBC Private Wealth Management includes CIBC National Trust Company, CIBC Delaware Trust Company, CIBC Private Wealth Advisors Incorporated, all of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of CIBC Private Wealth Group, LLC, and the private banking division of CIBC Bank USA. All of these entities are wholly owned subsidiaries of Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This document is intended for informational purposes only, and the material presented should not be construed as an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Concepts expressed are current as of the date of this publication only and may change without notice. Such concepts are the opinions of our investment professionals, many of whom are chartered financial analyst charter holders or certified financial planner professionals. Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards Incorporated owns the certification marks CFP and Certified Financial Planner in the U.S. There is no guarantee that these views will come to pass. Past performance does not guarantee future comparable results. The tax information contained herein is general and for informational purposes only. CIBC Private Wealth Management does not provide legal or tax advice, and the information contained herein should only be used in consultation with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors. To the extent that information contained herein is derived from third-party sources, although we believe the sources to be reliable, we cannot guarantee their accuracy. The CIBC logo is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Investment products are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.